This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. This is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs healthcare. Um, in this episode in particular, we're going to be talking about the state of mental health care in the United States is uh, especially near and dear to my heart since I originally got involved with the Medicare for All movement many, many, many years ago through sort of a, a mental health care crisis and my inability to get the care that I needed at the time that it, I was going through it. Um, I, I've told the story in the past, but I was dealing with a pretty serious panic disorder and I was admitted to a hospital um, when I was living in upstate New York and uh, I was stayed, I was admitted for three days in the hospital. And when I was discharged, my doctor sat me down and said, I don't want you to panic or anything, ha ha ha. But your insurance company is not, has, says they're not going to cover your stay. I was insured. I thought I had done everything right at the time. I thought I was covered. Um, but I was got home and there was a $5,000 bill waiting for me. And this is, you know, at a time when I was earning $14,000 a year. So it, it might as well have been $5 million to me. Um, so I, I won't tell the whole story all over again. Um, but that was the first time I really realized that there, there really is no such thing as true kind of healthcare security in the United States, even if you think you're insured, even if you think you're safe. Um, and got me involved with thinking about how we really need to change this healthcare system to support patients. And um, especially, uh, I think mental health care is, is extraordinarily important and is one of the areas where we do the worst in the United States, probably along with uh, primary care and substance use disorder care. Um, so, Stephanie, do you want to introduce our two amazing guests today? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I also have my own healthcare story, and so I'm I'm just really excited about this episode, and excited that our guests are joining us to speak about this today. Uh, so we have Dr. Beverly Smith. Um, she's the president of the American Mental Health Counselors Association, and has over 24 years of behavior healthcare experience as a psychotherapist crisis counselor, and many other roles practicing in settings ranging from private practice and public education to corrections, uh, community counseling, and higher education. And we are also joined today by Gila Todd, who is the Government Affairs Manager at the American Counselor Association. He's the lead on all federal issues for the association and is an active member of the Medicare Access Coalition. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So just to start with the big picture, um, Gila, how would you describe the state of mental health care access for adults and particularly senior citizens in the United States today? At this point, especially with the pandemic, I feel like nationally and not just for members of the Medicare community, I feel like we're in a, we're in a mental health crisis. You know, even according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, one in four members of the Medicare population, which means someone with long-term disability or a senior citizen, were suffering from some sort of mental illness. Um, access to any sort of behavioral health provider is very limited if you're in the Medicare population. You know, the pandemic has exacerbated any mental health issues you have because a lot of, especially those that are in the senior population, 
are dealing with not only isolation, but they're dealing with anxiety, um, any loss of a family member or a friend. And in, in that, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those senior citizens live in rural areas. And believe it or not, 50% of rural areas have no behavioral health provider at all. So the state of mental health access for the Medicare population is dismal at this point. And is it uh, limited because most uh, Medicare or most therapists won't take Medicare as an insurance? Or I know you also spoke a little bit to the actual just inavailability of practitioners in certain areas. Yes. So for currently for licensed professional counselors, they're unable to bill Medicare as a, a mental health provider. And, you know, that's blocking out approximately about 200,000 mental health providers that can provide access to uh, the, the Medicare population. And like I said, especially in like under-resourced and, and rural populations where they may or may not have transportation to get to a mental health provider, you know, it's, it's kind of it's crucial that we have those mental health providers in those rural areas and especially those under-resourced areas where transportation may not exist for those um those who need the, the help. And this is kind of a follow-up question. I, I guess we, you've been talking a little bit about the Medicare population. Dr. Smith, is it is it any better or much, much better for people in the private insurance uh, population? Or was my experience kind of typical of also the struggles folks can have, even if they do have private insurance through, through a job, for example? Well, I think the struggles can, can be the same. Um, but when you're talking about licensed professional, clinical licensed professional counselors, they have the ability to be authorized providers for private insurance. Um, but however, when you talk about Medicare, uh, we're not able to, we're not authorized at this point to provide service to those who have Medicare. And therein lies the big difference. Um, therein lies the big difference. Um, as a licensed professional counselor, a clinical mental health care provider, part of the behavioral health care community, we are licensed, we're trained, um, and in some cases, we have been trained more than others who are providing certain services. But nevertheless, currently, we're not able to provide service to those who um, are 65 and older who have Medicare. And that does simply means that those individuals, those enrolled in those plans are not able to receive, uh, in many instances, the medical services that they need. Um, as um, the other panelists mentioned earlier, there are many who need the services who are 65 and over, mm. who are in rural area, areas or in areas in which the communities are just underserved, underserved communities. Um, when you look, up, look at the U.S., there are about 77% of the U.S. counties in which there's a shortage of behavior health care providers. If you look overall, there are about 80 million Americans who are in areas or communities lacking the sufficient number of providers. Licensed uh, mental health care providers, LPCs such as myself, we uh, are in greater number, if you will, than of some other health care providers. So we could indeed alleviate the strain that is currently on the mental health and the addiction workforce. And so I am grateful to uh, the bipartisan legislation that is coming before us. Um, I am grateful for it, but I do want to see it pass. And that is the, the critical piece. Um, I am gr grateful that is a bipartisan legislation. Uh, but again, we need to get that passed. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk about that bill a little bit further on as well. But can you tell us a little bit, because it, it sounds like 
Uh, Medicare in particular kind of singles out counselors, mental health counselors for non-reimbursement, but does cover other types of mental health providers. Can you say a little bit more about what exactly, uh, what exactly is it that licensed mental health counselors do and how is it different from maybe these other uh, provider types? And that's a good question. Um, we do not um, dispense medication, provide prescriptions. Outside of that, we practice according to the laws of our state. Um, and in various states, we are able and given by law to diagnose, participate or do treatment planning, um, actually not only perform the treatment planning, devise it, we also provide treatment. So we do we diagnose, we treat, we provide the services um, that the other professionals provide. Everything except drugs, which is all that's used to treat mental health care these days, right? <laughs> well, yes, it is. But interesting enough, if we are able to, um, if we're authorized to provide services to the individuals who have Medicare, then we could be more proactive on the front end and possibly alleviate or lessen the amount of individuals who are receiving medication or drugs in order to cope or to navigate through their mental health issues. And so if we're able to be more proactive, that means we can possibly lessen um, the rate of those who are getting addicted to opiates. And I was being somewhat facetious about the, the <laughs> drugs. I, I mean, you know, and we, on the other hand, we hear from psychiatrists who feel like they've just become drug dispensaries, basically, and they barely get to actually care for clients or patients at all. Um, and here on the other side, uh, it seems like counselors who are really specializing in the care side mm -hmm. um, are not even allowed to, to provide treatment in some cases. Exactly. And you said it best. We actually specialize in direct care services. We actually specialize in helping individuals, families, or groups or leading facilitating organizations to work through mental health crisis. We were trained to provide direct services, to be proactive, to be an intervention, and to help provide strategies. So we, we, we specialize in that training called caring and hope, holding out hope and showing compassion, showing empathy. We provide some of the same strategies that are research-based in helping those who are struggling with mental health issues. Um, Gila, can I ask, jump in here, what are the impacts uh, when people can't access needed mental health care? That's a great question. Um, so usually when someone can't access mental health care, especially if there's someone who's 65 and over who may have a com comorbidity like diabetes, lung disease, things of that nature, it can exacerbate their illness and possibly hospitalize the person. Also, in many cases, as a matter of fact, uh, ACA did a survey in 2019, I think it was, and we surveyed a, a little over 3,000 of our members asking if they had to stop uh, continuity care because of the Medicare um, gap. And 50% and of them said that they had to either refer their client to someone else or just stop care altogether. And what that means is usually when you stop, when you stop care, or if you stop, or you interrupt going to a mental health provider, you know, when you have to go to someone else, there's a long list before you, or well, a long wait time before you can see that provider again, which also exacerbates an ongoing mental health um, situation. You know, so 
In other words, it will make your it may make your situation worse if you're battling mental illness at the time. Mm. So what I hear you saying is that mental health care is just as important and integrated to physical health care. Exactly. Exactly. There's a slogan or phrase that I hear often, which I totally agree with. There is no health care without mental health care. And so I think you have to embrace that and really understand the holistic approach to serving and to helping individuals and providing health care. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I, I suspect part of the challenge in sort of raising awareness about this and really moving the ball on mental health care is just the stigma around talking about mental health and challenges accessing it. I know I, I used to give kind of very... I used to just say I was admitted to the hospital. I wouldn't say anything about why. Uh, and it, it took a little bit of courage to start actually talking about having a panic disorder and explaining it to people. Once I started doing it, I was actually really surprised by how it resonated with so many people. And um, it really started feeling good when people like, oh, you know, I've had a similar issue or I had a family member who went through the same thing. Um, so I've been trying to speak out more and more openly about, um, you know, having struggled with a mental health issue and, you know, really having gotten over it through the help of mental uh, health providers. Um, it was one of the most important medical interventions in my life. It just in quali- improved my quality of life so much. And it was the one thing that the insurance companies did not want to cover, <laughs> um, which really irritates me um, to no end. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine the stigma is something that all, all of us have to deal with as well. Um, trying to raise awareness. And I imagine also that, you know, the uh, this crazy systemic problem, these systemic problems that you've brought up that, you know, there's only so many counselors in certain areas or there are no counselors in certain areas. That's all also partially due to the fact that we don't value mental health care as much. I think that as a system, system wide situation, of course, we don't really have a health care system as much as sort of like a public private market <laughs> monster, really. But, you know, if you do see it from the systemic level, then you can say, okay, well, we don't have counselors in this area or uh, mental health practitioners of any kind here. So we can, you know, like in a Medicare for all system, for example, you could say, well, like they do in Australia, well, we need more of this kind of doctor in this area. So we're going to pay doctors more if they decide to serve this area or this area. And so that's one of the ways that in which you could actually, um, sort of facilitates more equitable distribution of care resources. Yeah. And I guess I had a, a follow-up question for you, Dr. Smith. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about the gap in Medicare for counseling services. Um, what's the story with Medicaid? Um, I mean, if, if it follows any of the other Medicaid things that we look at, it's going to vary wildly from state to state. Um, and you know the states that have not expanded Medicaid, obviously there's much smaller population that can access Medicaid at all. Um, but we know even what Medicaid covers varies just wildly from state to state. So, I mean, what does mental health access look like under Medicaid, and is the situation any different in terms of counseling services under that? I think I think there's some still some similarities where it's wide access may be needed and needed for all. However, there is a little different when you talk about state to state, because it does differ from state to state. Um, For example, there are some states where LPCs can see in clinic, for example, um, someone who has Medicaid, you know, Um, and that's uh, under various other umbrellas, if you will. Okay, but being able to see someone straight out for Medicaid uh, without going through those other avenues, that may be more challenging. 
I think the problem still boils down to how do we provide access to all individuals who are in need of mental health care services? How do we make the playing field level and evil, even, excuse me, and accessible to all individuals? And I think that's a critical piece for, for all. Uh, making the insurance panels, making the insurance panel, panels accessible uh, for LPCs as well as MFTs to be able to get on those panels to provide services. We are in a mental health crisis and the reality of it is there's a shortage and we have Americans who are not being served. And that's the bottom line. Yeah. And I think that's part of why we're fighting for a Medicare for all system, it would allow us to cover comprehensively mental uh, mental health care across the board in the country. Um, but obviously it's important until we reach that to improve mental health coverage as much as we can within each of these programs. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the bill that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we have been advocating for, um, you know, right now the Congress is doing this budget reconciliation bill, and there's a chance that they will expand Medicare to include uh, dental uh, vision and benefits, which it, it seems shocking that those things aren't covered. Um, but there is this bill that you've been talking about, which would allow uh, Medicare to uh, reimburse counselors who are providing mental health services. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that bill, Gila? Sure. So the bill is called the Mental Health Access Improvement Act. Um, in the Senate, it's S828. And in the House is HR 432. And like you said, it like you said, the, the essence of the bill, it will um, reimburse uh, marriage and family therapists as well as licensed professional counselors to be, be reimbursed under Medicare, specifically Medicare Part B, which um, which which is under, you know, which which handles mental health services. Um, so the American Council Association has been advocating for this bill for years at this point. Um, you know, last session, we had a lot of momentum on the bill. I think in the House, we had about 113 co-sponsors. And in the Senate, I think we had about 50 co-sponsors. Uh, we reintroduced the bill in January. Uh, in the House at this point, we have, what, we have 18? No, in the House, we have 45 co-sponsors. And in the Senate, we currently have 18. Um, so right now we are um, we're utilizing our, our grassroots to to get them to send messages to their representatives in both the House and the Senate. Uh, recently, uh, the Senate Finance Committee requested an RFI, which is a request for information. Um, my association, as well as the Medicare Coalition, uh, submitted comments, which hopefully, you know, the feedback that we provide will help move the bill forward. Um, and I would encourage anyone to submit comments on their own behalf as well. Um, in addition to that, we're also going to the Hill, uh, you know, going to different congressional offices to get them to not only to not only bring, bring attention to the bill, but to get them to co-sponsor and support our bill moving forward. Um, right now with reconciliation, it's pretty much uh, sucking all the air out of the room. Um, yep. yep. <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm thinking that well, this is just my own thoughts that you know they probably won't move anything on our bill to until around the holiday the holidays or beginning of next year. Um, but in the meantime, we're still moving forward with all of our grassroots advocacy and all of our hill stomping. So I just want to know who is 
who would be the opposition to such a bill? Like insurance companies or? No, but the thing is, the thing is, so, you know, like I said, we've been, we've been advocating for this bill for years and years. Um, and initially, you know, that was, that was my initial question. Who is opposing this bill? And no one is opposing the bill. Um, one of our barriers that when we go to congressional offices is probably the price of the bill. The bill is 1.1 billion over 10 years, but you know, in this climate, that's the drop in the bucket. Um, when you talk about all the COVID relief packages that are trillions of dollars. Um, and also a lot of times when we go to commercial offices, you know, there was, like, oh, this is a no brainer. I don't understand why this isn't passing. And then you have to, then I have to reiterate to congressional offices that you guys need to realize the provider list for the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services hasn't been updated in 30 years. Wow. So it has been updated since 1989. 1989, I wasn't even born. Just kidding. (laughs) 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 But yeah, but but it's sort of, you know, when you go to Congress and when we go to um, CMS, we have to let them know how serious it is. It's when we're talking about, um, you know, mental health services and how critical the need is for my access to mental health services, not only for the Medicare community, but for everyone, you know? So, and I think they get it. It's just getting the support that we need to push this bill forward. And that's what we're trying to do now along, you know, with our association, with the help of people like, like Dr. Smith, you know, we're slowly but steady moving forward, so. So this is a question that I don't actually have on my list, but I'm just really curious about it. Um, oh, horrible. <laughs> going off. Yeah. <laughs> off <the rail. laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I've noticed that um, there are some counselors that I've reached out to who say, like, we don't take insurance and our fee is like $200 a session or something like that. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what is, like, how is it possible that you can't take insurance? And then, of course, it's because, you know, maybe they're just simply like opting out of because of this sort of shortage of counselors and they can choose who they want to see. And so they can sort of opt out of this like weird fractured insurance system where some insurance will pay really low rates or some will pay at all and then just decide and also just like the bureaucratic mess of insurance, but also just decide like I want to choose a higher paying clientele or something like that. Um, Do you see this? And then do you what do you how do you think it impacts equity? Well, I, I think that has been in existence for a long time. It's just become more prevalent now that some providers are just going to self-pay and they've niched themselves into a community or to a clientele who supports that. And so by all means, if, if you're meeting the needs of some clients, then by all means, I you know, I advocate for that as well. Because um, some clients and patients have different needs for different reasons. And so, you know, I, I do re- respect that. Um, But still, we still have a shortage and you still have a lot of providers out here who are on various insurance panels who do desire to be an authorized provider uh, for Medicare. And so because of that and because of the shortage, we still have to focus our attention on how do we now make services equitable and accessible to all who need mental health care services. Um, I want to highlight something that... um, 
Mr. Todd said earlier, there are different organizations that are all working towards trying to ensure or advocate for um, licensed mental health counselors as well as MFTs to have to be authorized Medicare provider. Um, there are several of us who sit on a coalition that is called um, the Medicare Mental Health Workforce Coalition. And there we come together to strategize or to provide the support and advocacy as a team, as a coalition, because that makes a difference. I think we're all working at various grassroots levels and that is extremely important. We're having various campaigns. We've had some already. Um, last month, we'll be having more to uh, support this legislation, but there's a critical piece in that we are working together and that makes a difference. And do I have the bill numbers right down there? Yep. Great. I have a question for, let me, I guess, Gila, you, you spoke a little bit to the pandemic right at the very opening. Can you say a, bit, a little bit more? I mean, um, how has the pandemic changed both our needs as uh, mental health needs, but also how has it impacted um, you know, the, the provider community. I mean, I certainly know uh, in the rest of the healthcare world, um, a lot of people had to put off physical care for a long time, procedures and stuff, or were avoided it even if it was safe, um, just because they were worried about exposure to the pandemic. Maybe they have some, you know, pre-existing conditions, they're being extra, extra cautious. So there was both a, a provider access challenge and then, but I, I don't think the pandemic had the same impact on, um, you know, non-mental health needs in terms of just a, probably an explosion of need. Um, like how, what else do we need to do to really get to meeting the needs that we're facing under this pandemic, which is still kind of dragging on and on and on? Well, so to answer your first question, just hearing from our membership, um, you, you know, mental health access is is more important now than ever. Because like I said, you know, with, with the onslaught of the pandemic, people's mental health has, has been deteriorating just because, you know, we're all going through the same thing, and whether it be anxiety, loss of a loved one, you know. Um, and also hearing from our members, you know, they've been busier now more than ever because so many people are, are trying to access um, mental health services. Um, you know, and to answer your last question, one thing that we can do is just to, you know, send an email, call your your congressperson, let them know the importance of access to mental health services and how critical it is, not only to your community, but just nationally. You know, this is something that we have to, that is important to everyone. Even if you're not suffering from any, any sort of mental health issue, you know, your family and friends will all can also benefit from the passage of this legislation. Um, and I'll let Dr. Smith answer, talk from her perspective. I think the COVID-19 has definitely impacted uh, the providers, uh, clinicians, practitioners, as well as the patients and the, the people that we serve. We've all have been experiencing COVID-19 to some degree or the other. Uh, we've been impacted, whether we've been in, impacted directly or indirectly. And so to some extent, we've, we've experienced what we call corporate mourning or corporate grieving. And so because that is the case, now how do we navigate? How do we help us help ourselves to experience or improve our quality of life in the midst of a pandemic? And how do we see ourselves through this and on the other side of the pandemic? And we hope that it's soon, because I think we said this a year ago, we thought we would be through this now. And I think we started out this year saying, oh, we're post COVID-19. 
Well, I don't think we're post COVID nineteen yet. We're still. I really in- thought we might be. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We're still in the midst of it, and we still have individuals sixty five and older, and, and, and the entire population that are suffering from isolation. But as we talk about mental Medicare for the sixty five and over, the baby boomers who really need the support, we're talking about individuals who've experienced, you know, social is- isolation depression and anxiety. But yet there are stigmas here that we still that exist that does not allow those individuals to say, hey, I'm suffering or I'm not okay. And so we try to hashtag various uh, things such as it's okay not to be okay so that we can begin to bring awareness and increase the message that it's okay if you are suffering, you know, try to access and get help. But it brings us back to the question again, for 65 and over, over individuals, who, who all are they going to reach out to when there's a shortage? Where do they go? And when there's a shortage, such as it is now, then basically our American people just suffer. And that is unfortunate. We can, um, let this legislation can be passed and it can drastically and immediately help uh, ele- uh, alleviate the strain and the stresses on the workforce. And it also can provide the necessary services that individuals need, particularly those who are 65 and over and, and the baby boomers. So COVID-19 had a drastic impact on, on, uh, on the world. And it's not something that we can just look at on TV anymore. It's something that we see within our communities, with the, even within our families. And so we encourage individuals, check on everyone in your family, but particularly check on those who are older, the 65 and above, because they need that support. Well, I was so, when Gila said there was no organized opposition to this bill, I was jealous. Um, <laughs> the, the Medicare for all bill, I, we've got insurance company opposition, we've got pharmaceutical opposition. We're just recently seeing dental opposition. Uh, we had, we got the insurance brokers. We've got for-profit hospital chains. Um, so I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be able to get this done. And like you said, the the spending we're looking at right now in this budget reconciliation package, um, I mean, it looks it makes the price tag you mentioned look like almost nothing at all. Um, and I I would imagine in some cases it must be more affordable to, to to provide coverage with a counselor than it would to, for example, send somebody to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So there must be an element of savings there as well, right? There's a big element of saving. In fact, you know, if someone goes to an hospital, someone's hospitalized due to a mental health issue, um, that bill alone is, is huge. But however, what you pay for that hospitalization, that stay, you can easily have an individual participate in at least 12 sessions compared to that one emergency hospitalization due to mental health or psychiatric issues. Yeah. Would this bill like fully alleviate the shortage and need for counselors or is there something additional that needs to be done? I think the bill is is a start. It is a start because again, LPCs, MFTs, we can alleviate that strain that's currently on the mental health and addiction workforce. So will it it totally wipe out the issue? It will not totally erase the issue, but it definitely will help millions of Americans who are out here now suffering and need assistance. 
And my guess is, uh, and again, tell me if I'm right or wrong here, either one of you. Um, but I, I, when I, when we compare the United States to our peer countries and their healthcare systems, um, I've noticed that we we tend to do fairly well in really expensive areas of care um, because it's so high reimbursement, and hospitals want to do those types of care. Uh, you know, they want to be providing oncology. They want to be providing procedures because that's what brings the money into these hospitals. Um, and, you know, usually there's a limited number of those specialists who can do it. So they're able to charge higher prices if we have a market-based system. But we tend to do really poorly with preventive care and primary care. And we tend to reimburse providers less than our peer countries do for that sort of care. So my guess is that because uh, not I'm sure not all mental health care is, is, is preventive or primary. Some of it is also emergency care. But for the the very important, you know, preventive and primary mental health care, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and assume that it doesn't pay as well as it should. Uh, the reimbursement rates are not as good as they should be to have the type of the number and the type of skilled providers that we need really to address the crisis in the country. Is that is that about right? Or uh, are things better from a reimbursement standpoint than we see in other primary care areas? No, I mean, I, I think you're you're accurate in that. Um, I think you're accurate in that. And that's just the bottom line. <laughs> you're accurate. But, you know, you have various individuals and professionals who are addressing those issue, issues in the appropriate uh, form when those things occur. You have some individuals who said, you know, when I see my uh, behavior health care provider X amount of time, it triggers something on the insurance side and then subsequently moving forward, certain sessions may not be authorized. So I think they've received the necessary support and professionals to help them navigate that so that those things don't occur um, moving forward. Yeah. And that's the limited visits that we see in so many insurance plans, right? Like the, yeah, it's like you're cut off after X number of visits, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think a lot still goes to um, our corporate mindset of, what's important and where we do, where we place value. Um, I think we still place value on the physical because we have not totally, um, we have not understood comprehensively the integration of the mind and, and the body and how that plays. I think in my profession we have, and we understand it, we understand the importance of neuroscience, neural counseling, and we know how to navigate in that space but everyone else in the world are not necessarily still haven't arrived at that point yet. So we still have to increase the awareness. We still have to help others and educate others on the awareness and need for more mental health service, more mental health um, providers. Yeah. And I actually just, as one last thing, I, I, I think that this is a worldwide issue. So I lived in Japan and then I lived in Denmark with my husband um, and single payer countries are run their healthcare system so much better than, you know, uh, we do in the U.S. But the one area, you know, I think where I see sort of like I'm having the same struggle of access as I did in the U.S. is with mental health care. Um, and I think that it has more to do, again, with this sort of undervaluing of the whole, the role of mental health care. Um, and so it tends to be like really underfunded compared to every other part of, you know, even like a, in a really well-funded single-payer system that covers like all of your long-term care needs, which is like crucial, you know, for people who, you know, at the end of life and everything, they still like in Denmark where there's like, they spend 3% of their GDP on, 
on end of life care uh, or sort of long term care and everything that goes into that, they're still not spending enough to you know cover their population adequately for mental health care. And so it's it really is sort of I think the thing that's changing and it's not limited to the US, but it's yeah, worldwide even. And I think once we continue to deal with more aggressively the stigmas that are placed on mental health care or on mental health, once we aggressively, consistently deal with the stigmas and educate people and the, the public, I think then we can help move the needle uh, when, when we talk about reimbursement, because we'll begin to understand, as you said, the value and the importance of mental health care. But still, we're, we're in a place where individuals uh, still feel shame to talk about their mental health care. There are many individuals who've been impacted by COVID-19 from a mental health standpoint, and they're afraid to say anything. So they're quiet, they're silent. Yeah. And I think it is kind of telling our stories that has the most powerful moral impact often on changing these the, the laws and what gets covered and all that. So, um, I think we're going to wrap up here. Thank you so much, Gila and Dr. Smith, for joining us. Um, really, really appreciate it. This is an area that we knew very, very little about until you joined us. Um, and, you know, we've been advocating so hard around dental vision and hearing for Medicare. I'm so glad that you brought to our attention, you know, this huge gap in Medicare in terms of mental health coverage. Um, and again, I encourage folks to call their senators, call their reps. The, the bill numbers are right there and they will be in the show notes of the podcast as well. We'll put include links. Um, and I want to end by thanking our podcast team, without which we would not be able to do any of these episodes. Um, our podcast manager is Sarah Sang. Our researcher and writer for this episode was Lindsay Baish. And actually, Lindsay kind of conceived this whole episode, so she deserves like an extra, extra shout out for this episode. <laughs> um, our show notes writer was Jerry Katz, and our brand new audio editor was Christian Brandt. So thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. Thanks.